And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. There's hardly a more authentic or assiduous member of the United States Senate than Sherrod Brown, the gravelly-voiced populist Democrat from Ohio. As his state is very much in play and his issues are rising to the fore, I sat down with Senator Brown this week to talk about the election and beyond, and, of course, his life and career. Here is that conversation. Senator Sherrod Brown, it's great to be with you again. Uh, Here we are, 26 days, I guess now, 26 days, 27 days before uh, the uh, election, and you're sitting there in Ohio, and everybody's looking at Ohio now uh, with interest because uh, uh, polling shows the race very close. Some polls have uh, Vice President Biden up, and it's important because no president has won the presidency since John F. Kennedy without carrying your state. So tell me what's going on there. I know you, you have your ear to the ground. Yeah, I, well, I remember a dozen years ago that um, you you and the, and the senator from Illinois flew to Ohio the Sunday night before the election because it was really the swing state in those days. And uh, because 2016 was, if not an outlier, it certainly... Um, kind of too many people took Ohio out of the toss-up category, but it never really was. It's always been, it's been a toss-up state for years. It's been a swing state. And Ohioans feel, I mean, Biden, Biden is a pro-worker candidate, not afraid to use the word union. Uh, he is, he will be campaigns through the eyes of workers contrasted with Trump's just regular betrayal of workers. And that has really come through. I think there is, there's excitement in the suburbs among yeah. educated women especially. There are workers that voted for, for Trump in 16. Some of them are coming back where um, I would hope they'd come back to, to us, and they are. And I think African-American turnout, while it's not going to do as well as it did in 8 and 12 with Barack Obama at the lead top of the ticket, it will do better than it did in 2016. In 2018, in my Senate re-election, we had the highest black turnout in the Midwest, in Ohio. So um, we know how to do it here. African-American engagement is always um, deep and broad here, and that's going to pay off this year. Yeah. The suburban piece, obviously, is a story nationally. I mean, we've seen this trend, and Ohio is obviously uh, part of that. Have you talked to the Biden folks? They, they, they've invested, I think, $3 million in television and communications in the state, um, which is sort of a halfway um, have you, uh, have you been in touch? You must be, I know you because I used to get calls from you at the white house regularly about the things in your state that you needed. And you were the, as you were more assiduous than any Senator, uh, there was about pursuing interests, uh, in your own state, which I always appreciated. You must be, uh, those same instincts must be at play here. You must be bugging the hell out of them to Thank you for saying you appreciated that because I know that I annoyed you too, but it was part of the job. <laughs> no, no, I, I, you know I mean in a very good way. Well, thank you. I, I've ta- been talking to the Biden people regularly, a uh, handful of different people on the campaign and different functions um, since about June uh, and pretty intensively. And at first they didn't, you know, they, they don't need, Biden doesn't need Ohio to win. He wins Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Uh, doesn't really need Florida, doesn't really need North Carolina or Ohio. 
or even Arizona if he wins those states. But you obviously want to do better than that. If he wins Ohio, and I really think he's going to, it's a landslide, an electoral college landslide. And uh, we know the importance of the electoral college landslide in two ways. One is that that um, it will it, it will more even more um, uh, pull the, it will more take the legs out from under anything Trump tries to do uh, in challenging the election as we know he will. It will look it will look even stupider and more futile when Trump tries to do that if we get to 300. 20 electoral votes or whatever. The other thing it does is it makes it easier to govern in 2021 that when an electoral college landslide. So um, Ohio's absolutely in play, as it as is Arizona, as is a number of these states um, that 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 Barack Obama carried. Um, but the, I mean, I know he didn't carry Arizona, but North Carolina once. And so we we can win these states. And um, I just think the contrast between. Biden and and Trump is so vivid increasingly, and voters in my state are seeing that. Yeah, I want to get to that in a second. You're a former Secretary of State. In fact, voting, voter registration and voting participation was a major thrust of yours uh, back in the Pleistocene age when you were Secretary of State of Ohio. But uh, the uh, uh, one of the interesting things about Ohio is the way you guys handle write-in, uh, you know, ballot mail-in ballots and absentee ballots. They all get counted um, on election day. Is that correct? I mean, we're going to get a verdict from Ohio most likely on election night. That's another big advantage of Ohio, and that's what I have. That's the case I've been making to all kinds of people in the Biden campaign and outside the Biden campaign. If it, you know, in allow an election night. All the early voting, the absentee voting, which started, the early voting started yesterday. People are starting to get their absentee ballots uh, in the mail. Connie and I have already sent for hours, and many people have. Two million people have already sent for absentee ballots in Ohio. The poll, the, the lines at the in early voting yesterday were long, they were comparable to a few days before the election kind of line, uh, starting at four o'clock in Columbus in the morning for an eight o'clock opening of the board, which tells you something. Um, but but Ohio, they count all those early ballots. They open them and sort them and, and approve them and, and accept them in terms of checking for identification and all. That's all done. So the normally the first ballots that are put in the computer at 7.30 on election night or the early vote, then the, then the precinct workers begin to bring ballots in throughout the evening and those are counted. The only ballots that likely won't be counted by about 10 or 11 o'clock if things go as normal are absentees that are postmarked um, by election day but arrive later. So if you mail your absentee ballot the day before the election, it'll count, but it won't count till the board receives it, maybe the Thursday or Friday afterwards. But that's a small percentage of ballots, those in what are called provisional ballots. But we, we will know if Ohio goes for Biden, um, election night, in essence, is over for Trump. Yeah, um, exactly. And, I mean, he can't win without Ohio. The point of your question, I think, that we, we can know that early. You can, you can, you can put the nation's, uh, the nation's curiosity to rest uh, with, right. with the re- results from Ohio. That also makes Trump's whining and legal challenges. The, everybody that knows anything about elections, including the media, will all say, hey, Biden won Ohio. On this election, this election is is certain. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Florida could have the same effect, and they, they also could. handle ballots in the way that Ohio does. So, those two states are going to be ones to watch uh, on election night. What do you make of the last crazy week 
uh, we had we had the revelation about the president's tax returns, which have now seems like a vague memory. It's like nine days ago. Then we had the debate, which was you know uh, tumultuous to say the least. Uh, and then the president uh, contracting COVID. Has this was this race done before that? In your view, I mean, was it baked in? Was the dynamic baked in, or or has something happened in the last week? And polls have been shifting in Biden's favor even more than they had been. Um, I've expected that we would win, and I think Trump senses that, kind of has that in his brain that he's going to lose uh, for some time. But I think this last week is the first time I've really thought about electoral college landslide, the, the debates, and then the way he's handled the, his illness. Um, and this, his, I mean, his lack of empathy, we knew, his caring about nobody himself, we knew. Um, but this is, this is, you know, it's even, even two or three weeks before that, what he said about, about men and women who were, who died in the service of their country. I think that, that began to move some sliver of voters and then the um, the taxes did, and then now this. And I think Trump. I mean, I, I also think there may be a shift. Um, this this sounds a little conspiratorial, but I think McConnell knows he's going to lose the Senate too. And the fact that McConnell and Trump now are saying that McConnell's saying we're not going to do anything on this coronavirus package, even when Jay Powell, the the head of the Federal Reserve, who's a Trump appointee, as you know, nominated as the chair of the Federal Reserve. Um, is uh, Powell saying you've got to spend, you've got to err on the side of doing more, not less. And McConnell's essentially shutting it down. I think they're already planning to do to Biden what they did um, to you and the president, President Obama, when you came into office and hand you huge problems and then start attacking you immediately for not solving the problems quickly with no dollars. I mean, that's essentially what they will do next year. Well, one way, uh, one one issue that's going to come up very quickly if Biden wins is whether or not to do away with the filibuster. Um, that would have made a difference in two thousand and nine uh, on a number of different fronts. You favor that? I do. I I think the question is: Do we eliminate the filibuster in the first week or two, or do we wait till Republicans block something significant and then say, "See." They're not going to let us pass anything. I, I I think it's pretty certain we just can't do what we need to do without, and, and we, we can't do much of anything with this Republican opposition. You know, if they're if even if they're only forty six or seven Republicans, they will be able to block all kinds of things: minimum wage, fixing the overtime rule, Medicare at fifty five, uh, student what we can do about student debt. Uh, climate issues on all the great moral issues of our time, wealth inequality, uh, structural racism, climate, um, the Republicans, they don't buy the science even. You uh, talk about Medicare at 55. I think the Biden plan calls for it at 60. So you already have ambitions to push him a little further, huh? (laughs) (laughs) I'd forgotten. Back during the Affordable Care Act, we had a provision of Medicare at 55 and one senator, Joe Lieberman, changed his mind on a Sunday show and one of those Sunday shows and said it was a moral issue when clearly it was a Hartford insurance issue, if I can say that. Well, he's retired now. I think uh, the statute has the statute has run. But he's still endorsing Susan Collins and yes. sitting with um, sitting with the secretary of education to get her confirmed. So he's still trying to be a player. You know, Bernie Sanders uh, was on this podcast uh, uh, 
last week, I guess, and said, you know, we're going to fight like hell to get Joe Biden elected president, and then we'll, we'll fight with him over uh, policy within the system. How much, uh, how much cohesiveness do you think there will be within if Biden wins? And we should point out, you know, this is an unpredictable process, democracy being what it is. But, but should Biden win as now seems more likely than not? What kind of uh, cohesiveness will there be among Democrats? Because there is a big fissure in the Democratic Party between the left and, and Biden represents a more moderate brand of, 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 of politics. He's certainly progressive. He's on the progressive side of these arguments. But as a matter of degree, he's not where Bernie Sanders is. He's not where Elizabeth Warren is on a lot of issues. He may not be where you are. Uh, Do you think Democrats will hang together once Biden is elected, if he's elected? I I do. And here's why. And I I look at it a little differently. Um, A year ago, Joe Biden running for president was his, his, um, he expected, if he won, to bring us back to normalcy, back to what it was before Trump. The coronavirus and, and all that it's revealed, the great revealer, it's, it's revealed about racial disparities and income inequality uh, and, and other things, um, has, 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 has changed Biden. Not, not, I don't think it's moved him to the left. I think it's just he's realized he will be a very consequential president. He will, he will be LBJ. And so I think he does big traditionally progressive democratic things. I think we we come down together in raising the minimum wage. We are together as a party on fixing the overtime rule. We're together as the part as a party um, to do Medicare at 50, 55, or 60 with a public option overall. Uh, we're together as a party to do the $3,000 child tax credit. And every one of those things I mentioned their importance are this. You remember so vividly what happened in 2010. We did so much in 2009, but by 2010, the voters didn't feel much. They saw the economy was getting better. The Affordable Care Act wasn't in, wasn't in effect yet. The Dodd-Frank, they couldn't really tell. They didn't know what it was. This time, we've got to do specific things so that so that if you're a voter in, in Portland, Maine, you think, you know, I voted for Sarah Gideon and Joe Biden. Um, if you're a voter in Iowa, I voted for Teresa Greenfield and Joe Biden, and my life got better. My minimum wage went up. I got a child tax credit, a significant child tax credit. Um, I can get on Medicare at 58. So I, I, I think we we need to focus on what we can, we want to do, you know, in Democrats, one of the things I've done a lot of writing and reading about progressive history in the Senate, and one of the things that we, we one of the things I've learned is when Democrats take power, we do really big things that are durable, that last for decades. We do that, but this time we also have to do specific important things that people will feel. And I think every one of those things I mentioned, Bernie might want to go a little farther on Medicare. Um, he might want to go a little farther, probably not on the child tax. I think on most of these things. Green New Deal. Yeah, the Green New Deal, but I don't really know quite what that is. Mm-hmm. But that's not, that's not, we, we will certainly engage in climate change issues. Mm-hmm. And there will be disagreements, but on the real bread and butter, help people individually, one at a time, and millions of them, we do that as a, we, we sing together on that. You mentioned Biden uh, as LBJ. He, he will come to the office. I know you only served with him for a couple of years before he went on to become vice president, but he will uh, come to office with more legislative experience than, uh, than probably anyone uh, in, in modern 
history, I mean, even L I guess LBJ would be the last example, would, uh, does that matter? I mean, will it matter in terms of his being able to get stuff done? I don't think too much. I mean, I, I don't think it really, I mean, he, 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 I think it's not so much he knows the legislative process as he knows people. And well, I, think I mean, I mean, I understand that, but LBJ's genius wasn't that he knew the legislative process, which he did. It was that he understood how to deal with politicians, how to, how to have yeah. conversations about how you get to the bottom line of, uh, that people can agree on and move forward on. Yeah, that's, um, I mean, and nobody, nobody was quite LBJ, although yeah. I would guess Pelosi is. Yeah, no, he, yeah, right. No, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think all that will help him. I mean, he knows where the levers of power is are. He knows how the legislative process works. He knows so many of us personally. Yeah, that, that can only help. Um, Do you think that it will also cause him to resist things like uh, doing away with a filibuster, which is, you know, as a, as a person of the institution? Uh, no, I think he realizes he can be a consequential president. I think what's changed in Joe Biden more than anything is he realizes how important this this next two or four years can be to American to American history. Something he really thought he was custodial. He was gonna he was gonna restore the country to pre-Trump, mm -hmm. and he knows now that he needs to deal with these huge issues that this coronavirus um, has revealed. Last thing relative to w w current uh, events, you've got a Supreme Court nomination that is, uh, you talk about Operation Warp Speed, uh, that Operation Warp Speed is underway in the Senate to confirm uh, uh, Judge Barrett. Um, I, I want to ask you, I've seen some of your comments about this. Do you, can you, I think the Republicans have one point here, which is, if Democrats were if, if Democrats were in a position to fill a seat now, if the shoe was on the other foot, do you really think Democrats would not do it? it seems, uh, given the consequence of the seat, I think the thing that makes this egregious is not what they're doing now; it's what what McConnell did four years ago in, you know, refusing for four hundred days to to take up Merrick Garland and give him the hearing and the vote. Oh, that I think that's deserved. right. I think that if that hadn't happened, it would be a, bit, a very different discussion now. Correct. Mm -hmm. But I also think you know, the Republicans now, as you know, David, they, they can't, they can't win things democratically, small D war. They know that since 2006, more, more people have, more voters have voted for a Democrat for, for Senate in the aggregate around the country, every single election, except 2014, we win the popular vote consistently. We'll win the popular vote this time by 5 million, or if these mm -hmm. poll numbers are anything close by double that or more. Right. Um, so they, they, they don't win going through the democratic process. They all my life, you know, all your life, you've heard Republicans say, you can't legislate from the bench. I'm a strict constructionist. That's their only way to win is to legislate from the bench and to use, to use the filibuster to block things, to legislate from the bench to, I mean, so, so much of the structure of our country, of our government is, was a deal with plantation owners in the 1780s and 90s and, you know, 50 of the first 75 years of the country's existence had Southern plantation owners, uh, slave owners as president. And, and that, that influence is still felt in the electoral college and in the, in the Senate and all of the things we do that way. So um, that, that's, that's, that, that, natural conservatism resistance and Emerson said history is a fight between the innovators and the conservators and the conservators 
today's conservatives want to hold privilege close to them, hold on to their privilege and wealth and power. And that's that's sort of the, you know, that's sort of the dying breaths of, the, of this of this Republican regime. And all they got now is the courts to do it. Do you everybody's uh, keeping this on the down low because I don't think it is a broadly popular issue among the electorate. But do you support adding seats to the Supreme Court if uh, this Barrett nomination goes through? I don't know. I mean, I, I you're keeping it on the down low, too. huh? Yeah, no, I, I don't I don't not talking about it. I think, first of all, my answer, if you had said you support packing the courts, I would have said, well, that's what McConnell's been doing for for years through the whole court system, which he has. Um, I think there are options. I think that um, I'm reading, I'm not a lawyer, but I'm reading uh, a number of, of legal articles about, um, you know, we, when, when you have a jury trial and you're, you're charged with some, some crime, it's got to be a unanimous verdict. It's not a 7-5 verdict that, that um, puts you in prison or 7-5, you know, and so, so we, we need to, a number of constitutional scholars have looked at um, where the court should have jurisdiction. All that is decided by Congress. Does, should, was it good for democracy that, that we've had as Senator Whitehouse, the, the, really the expert on the, on the Supreme Court and the Senate? Senator Whitehouse pointed out we've had 80 decisions that are 5-4, five, five of the Republican nominees, four of your and Clinton's nominees, of Obama's and Clinton's nominees. Um, and and they're, they're really consequential issues on voting rights, on corporate power. And that's not the way to govern. Should those should they have to be six three or seven two so that the justices talk to each other as juries do and figure out what's best for this country? Instead, they ideologically one bird off a telephone wire. They all fly off and they get a five four vote, making corporate America more powerful and squeezing squeezing voting rights out of our communities. Is this a fight that uh, Biden should want to have early in his? Seems like he's going to have his plate very full early in his administration. But, you know, there'll be a lot of pent up energy of people who are going to urge action on that very quickly. On that, on, um, there certainly will be a push for D.C. statehood. Mm-hmm. Uh, the House has already passed D.C. statehood. Um, what about Puerto Rico? Mm-hmm. I think there are, you know, when, when you increasingly, when the public increasingly understands that small rural states have such power in the U.S. Senate, uh, when the Constitution was written, there was nothing like the ratio of the n- number of people in California to the number of people in Wyoming. Yes, and we we're becoming an increasingly metropolitan country, and so the population centers are growing. And and, and even within states, I mean, I um, I was talking to Senator Casey in Pennsylvania. Um, his number, the, the numbers I recall, he said 67 counties in Pennsylvania. He only won 19 of them, and he won his he won by 12, 13, 14 points in Ohio out of 88 counties. I won 16. You win the metro counties. You win a few others for various reasons. And that's the way politics has become, the the dominance. It also lends itself to the kind of polarization that we have, which is, yeah. uh, which is, is, is kind of insidious. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. I want to talk to you a little about yourself, as we do here at the Axe Files, because you've got a great uh, story. Uh, first of all, you're an interesting populist because you're a populist who came from the right side of the tracks. 
you came from a uh, you came from a <laughs> you came from a comfortable family. Your dad came from a prominent family in Mansfield, Ohio. He was the town doctor. Your mom was a teacher, community activist. Um, yours is not a kind of hard scrabble story, um, and yet you're a a, a, a kind of warrior uh, for the for the working class, uh, for the dignity of work, as you say. Tell me about growing up in Mansfield and tell me about your folks and their influence on who you became. My dad was a physician, but my dad was a never wanted to join the country club kind of physician. So he um, he was my, my, my mom is as uh, Hugo Black is I in the book I wrote about this. Hugo Black, my, like my mom was a my mom was a child of the segregated South born in 1920. She always cared about civil rights. Um, it was in her very much uh, the core of her and my politics really came from her more than anything. Uh, she, um, she told me once during the, all, the, all the controversy on busing in the 1960s and 70s when I was a teenager, she said, yeah, we used to have busing in the South. They used to bus black kids in a rickety old school bus past the nice new white school and put them in an inferior school with, with um, used textbooks if they got textbooks at all. Uh, my dad was a doctor who treated lots of patients that couldn't pay. And what and so they they really form my views on, on justice and social justice. Um, what what also formed it, my views on labor, because my parents weren't union members, they were not particularly pro-union or anti-union. Um, but they they you know they liked what Dr. King said, and King talked so much, as you know, um, interrelating worker rights and civil rights. I mean, look where he was killed and what he yes, was doing. Right for the trash workers in in uh, in Memphis. Yeah. But I soon after I went to the legislature in my early twenties, I used to when the legislature was out of sessions on Fridays, I I would often go to the Steelworkers Hall or the UAW Hall, and I would just kind of hang around. Workers were coming in and out and talking to them and learning about their lives. And I had gone to school with many of their children because there was one big public high school in Mansfield. But I didn't know their lives very well, and that's when I first saw. Uh, that's when I started reading books like *Christ in Concrete*, um, fiction, especially fiction about about unions and working class issues. My wife just finished her book. She's a her her dad was an electrical was a utility worker. Her mom was a home care worker, non-union. Her mom, but she saw what working class kids go through when when a doctor's kid gets has some trouble usually you can fix it when a working class kid gets in trouble uh the family connections or money often can't and that's really kind of the story of the stories i heard in those union halls and the story my my wife wrote about in her novel you think um just parenthetically you think uh unionization obviously has diminished tremendously in this country and part of that a big a great part of that has to do with policy making but uh, we're down to I don't know what six percent in the in the uh, private sector, uh, and this obviously is one contributory factor to the wage gap that we, or the income gap that we've seen growing. Do you think that it is possible to uh, put that that back together again? I mean, do you see a, a reigniting of the of the union movement? I see a reigniting. I putting it back together. If if, if implicit in your question, will and get back up to 1950s, early 60s levels of unionization. 
I mean, it, the economy doesn't really lend itself to that, yeah, even right. even if you have these anti-union consultants and corporations that, and, and politicians that wanted to put the union movement out of business. I mean, you you know, in those uh, 30 years ago, there were a lot of Republicans that were pretty supportive of the union movement. I mean, it wasn't their thing, but they weren't resistant the way they are now. And there's almost no Republicans in House or Senate that are that are particularly pro-union. But you can look, David, as you know, you can you can trace over any period of time, particularly since the 70s, you can look at um, profits, you can look at productivity, uh, you can look at executive compensation, and then you can look at wages, and wages are flat. Yeah, yeah, right. No, I think that's the story of our, that's the economic story of our time, Jim. And the unionization levels have declined commensurately. So there is no question that that joining a union means better wages and better benefits. I mean, there's no question about that. Um, and I think most voters, most most people, polls show most people would like to join a union if they had a chance. But um, it's the, the, the laws. I, mean, I asked Joe Biden at a in a meeting of uh, contributors, so it was mostly wealthy people, not unions there. And I said, what are you going to do for workers? And he said, first thing, minimum wage. Second thing um, is the PRO Act, the protecting our right to organize, to build a level playing field for mm-hmm. unions to organize. Back to your story, uh, you were a student leader, uh, the president of the student council in high school. You used it to protest the Vietnam uh, War. You also were, an, a, 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 I should say, aspiring student athlete I I read that uh, you were the guy who uh, they used to bring into the game when uh, the basketball game when the score was either lopsided one way or lopsided the other. There was a guy named Darko Militich on the Pistons. I don't know if you remember him for a few years back, and they called him the Human Victory Cigar because they would only bring him in when, when the when the game was over. So you were that guy, huh? I was mostly that guy. Baseball, a little <laughs> little less that guy, but basketball, I was that. Absolutely that guy, but still was it was a it was a good it was um, something I look back on fondly. You went off to Yale, and while you were at Yale, you decided you were going to run for the state legislature. And we should point out your mom was a Democratic Party activist and leader in Richland County, where you uh, were from. Uh, but it, I mean, it, it's sort of an interesting story. I mean, you had your first fundraiser at Yale, a, do- a dollar a person fundraiser for your race for the legislature. Uh, I mean, that it's kind of extraordinary to, to, to decide while you're in college, I'm going to go home and run for the legislature. Well, you, you know too much. When the, the, the good thing about that fundraiser is I just, I just cordoned off an area of the dining hall and people's daddies or mommies had already paid for their meals. So there was no overhead and I just charged a dollar. <laughs> Well, given given the people who go to Yale, you probably could have charged more than a dollar. But But you got elected. You were you were twenty two years old when you got elected to the legislature. I don't know. May still be the youngest. You may still be the youngest person ever elected to the Ohio legislature. Is that right? Not anymore, but that's neither here nor there. I um yeah, the Democratic. I worked. My mom wasn't actually an active Democrat at that point. She became an active Democrat. She was involved. She was head of the YWCA, which is, you know, next to the Urban League and the NACP is sort of the longest lasting um, pro-civil rights, pro-women's rights group out there, at least certainly among them. And um, that was her activism. Then when I ran for office, um, the Democratic County Chair I knew from working in the McGovern campaign. And then my dad, I mean, my mom, my mom and dad got more involved then. Um, And that's, that's how that happened that year. But 
um, it was sort of a long shot. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. What was it like to arrive at the state house as a 22 year old uh, and interact with those guys? And it was mostly guys, I presume. It was overwhelmingly guys, probably six or seven women. Um, it was, I, I don't really remember a lot, but it, there was a, there was a group of, it, it was 1974 and 1974 um, was a year when a whole lot of new people all over the country got elected, a huge class in Congress. Of yeah, people in, it was a Watergate year. Yeah. And so um, there were, there were probably a dozen uh, house members that year, mostly Democrats, a couple not um, that, that, that were under 30. And so there was a group of people that wasn't, I didn't stand out that much. I was on the young end of that, but there were a bunch of people that kind of looked like me and they, you know, they were, there were a few African-Americans, only a couple women. Um, but, um, it was the beginning of, it was the beginning of let's try something new. I think. Why'd you decide to make that your, you made a career decision, essentially. People at Yale tend to go on to other things. Now it was a different era. I understand it was an era of where activism was more, uh, well, I think it's coming back into fashion now, but but uh, you could have done a lot of things. Why'd you do that? Um, I didn't. I didn't really care a lot about making a lot of money. Um, I was very involved when I was in college on political campaigns and environmental movement stuff and anti-war stuff. And the Democratic chairman called me up and said, "We we need a candidate." Um, I and Rep. He told me later he didn't think I was going to win, but it, he, I could lose and then run for something local later. Um, I mean, he didn't present it that way, of course. Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't exactly. <laughs> that wouldn't have been a good argument. <laughs> I didn't exactly make a career decision then. It was like, okay, I'm 20, I'm 21. Um, why not? Um, and if I lose, I lose. And I didn't have much, I didn't have much to lose and a lot to gain. And then, then once you start the career decision kind of comes with it. And I, and I like, and I like, I love legislating. I, I, I like public service. I like getting out and doing these things. Eight years later, you ran for secretary of state. Uh, you were 30. You got elected um, and you served, uh, you served a couple of terms and, yeah, yeah. and, and got to, def- and were defeated. What was the, what was it like having had all that success? How did the loss sit with you? Well, the, the loss was obviously very hard. I, plus, I had just gone through a divorce yes. and have had, at that point, two, two small small children who are now in their late 30s. <laughs> and um, so it was really hard. I, lo- I lost to a guy named Robert Taft. Yes, which is a good name in Ohio. Yeah, and Taft, um, and I, you know, I, I probably, I don't know, I probably wouldn't have lost if I'd run against a guy named Axelrod, but who knows? I mean, Taft- <laughs> Come on, man. That's a household name. By the way, well, let me ask you something about this uh, uh, before you, you go on. Uh, Brown, you know, one of the things I used to cover politics at the, in the Midwest for the Tribune, and I covered uh, politics in Ohio, and Brown was like a magic name on the ballot in Ohio. There was, what, what is it about the name Brown? It seems like a pretty common name, but it, it, everybody said, well, well, Brown, that is a great ballot name in, in Ohio. Well, those days are sort of lost. I mean, there are no other. There were but just they were then, yeah. They were then. No, I benefited from that. There were a number of people named Brown, more Republican <laughs> than Democrat, a few Democrats. You had an AG named Brown. AG named Brown, who was a really good attorney general. Um, a governor Republican named Brown. But Brown, it's like named, Brown. Like, how can Brown be a magic name? Almost none of us were related. <laughs> 
So I benefited from the name Brown, but then I. But I'm asking had, you, who who was the original Brown that made everybody so fond of Browns? There were there was no Brown that was really big. I mean, there's one the second <laughs> years. They just were a number of them, and I like in Cleveland. And uh, Chicago's like this too. I think in Cleveland, if you run for judge and your name's Corrigan or Gallagher, um, or there's another one I'm just slipping my mind, you have a really good chance to win. Yeah. So, well, I'm from Chicago. I have a, I have a good sense of how Irish names on the judicial races work. But so anyway, I, I um, but Taft, Taft, and I have become pretty good friends. I mean, we we just called talk the other day on the phone, and he. Uh, he is. Uh, he's, he teaches at the University of Dayton, and I talk to his class every year. It's the only election I've lost, and he's a really decent man that I lost. But you, so you, you had been you had been divorced. It was a tumultuous divorce. We don't have to go into the details of it, but details of it have surfaced in various races, and so you and and you lose your office. I'm just wondering psychologically how one deals with that, having been the w- wonderkind of of Ohio politics. My my memories are mostly fuzzy, partly because I want them to be perhaps because it was <laughs> not a good time in my life. I, I went to Ohio State. I went, I went to teach at Ohio State to work on a project. I had been a Russian studies major in college and Ohio State hired me to, to help them do the transition. This was the early 90s from um, in Poland from the, their, um, their, uh, their civics classes to change from the Marxist-Leninist courses to um, to democracy course, if you want, I helped them train teachers and write curriculum. So it was a, it was a good place to land. It barely paid enough to, to live on, um, but uh, it was um, it, it. Then I went back into politics soon after. They should hire you now to come back and help them make the transition from democracy to authoritarianism uh, in in Eastern Europe. And sadly, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. In '92, you you got elected to the House. One of the things that interested me is one of the promises you made, and you kept it, was that uh, you uh, would uh, you would pay for your own health care uh, until there was some sort of universal health care law, and you kept that until the Affordable Care Act was passed. The court throws out the Affordable Care Act. Are you going to go back to paying for your health care again? Nobody's asked me that. I haven't thought of that. My my, my wife has a decent job now. So, but I, yeah, I, I I made that promise thinking that we were going to do health care. That was 1992 election. Then Gingrich took over in '94, and it wasn't until 2011 that I actually got government health care again. There are two issues on which you've been really, really active. One is trade. Uh, Mansfield was a manufacturing center in the in the early to mid 20th century, and you probably grew up during that period of time when when a lot of that manufacturing went away, and it really uh, it really jolted that community as it has many other communities, especially in the but not limited to the industrial Midwest. Is that is that what shaped your views on trade? Uh, I, th- I think it must have trade. I mean, I, I saw what bad trade policies did, and I. But to me, it was all part of. Um, you know, I, I don't. I don't blame China or Mexico for our trade deficits and for our jobs going there. I blame U.S. American corporate leaders who lobbied Congress 
uh, for bad trade agreements and, and tax laws that encourage those companies to go. So um, you, you shut down production in Mansfield, Ohio, or Chicago, Illinois, and you go to China, uh, you, get, you get a tax break, you get um, cheaper wages, you get weak environmental laws, you get low, low, little enforcement of worker safety rules. Um, but, but politicians went along with that. And weak politicians went along with that in my mind. So to me, it was just another exertion. Our trade policy was another exertion of corporate special interest policy that helped the rich at the expense of workers in Mansfield and Toledo and Cleveland and Akron. What do you think uh, our trade policy should be now? We're obviously, the world has changed. It is a global uh, economy. How do, you, how do you navigate that and the concerns that you have about uh, American manufacturing, workers' rights, and so on, because presumably you believe there should be trade agreements. I do, and I believe there should be engagement in the world, and I've always been an internationalist from starting from my studies in college to now that we should engage. We should, we should step up our involvement with the World Health Organization. Trump closed the off an office that Obama had opened, a global health security uh, consulate they called a directorate or in the yeah. office in the walls that, that was meant to deal with pandemics yeah would have thought of this pandemic earlier than we did and probably done something um so i, I always want more engagement i i um, think we should be in the world trade organization i wanted the, the climate the paris climate accords of course i want to be part of that the iran agreement all those things that obama and others have done but um well, with trade uh, we finally wrote a trade agreement that I thought made sense. And Trump put out um, his NAFTA renegotiation, which was just another corporate giveaway trade agreement. It did really nothing to make much change. And Ron Wyden, the, the formerly more of a free trader than I, is the senior Democrat on the, on the Finance Committee. He and I did the Brown-Wyden rewrite of that bill that puts workers in the environment first in our trade agreements. And I, I mean, I want to trade more but I want to see us lift living standards in both countries. And our trade agreements have done little to lift living standards in, in the developing world and done much to, to diminish our living standards in this country. So you, you, your basic argument is that cor- the corporate bo- bottom line has to give a little in order to, to uh, raise living standards, fairly reward uh, workers. And um, do you see any sort of growing awareness? Because there are there's discussions about inclusive capitalism and so on. Do you think there's a growing awareness that this great polarity that we've seen in our economy where wages have been relatively flat while uh, uh, incomes at the top, corporate, uh, you know, corporate uh, returns and so on have been high. Do you think there's a recognition that that's an unsustainable model? Um, you know, there is a, you know, what did Roosevelt say about saying, saving capital, capitalism, uh, uh, for the cap, uh, you know, rescuing capitalism from the capitalists or whatever it was. I mean, is there an element of that? Yeah, there absolutely is an element. That I think that the vo- the voters have always been suspicious of how this has all come down. Uh, the question is, do the do the policymakers think we can continue to milk this cow and do okay for themselves? When I say policymakers, I mean corporate leaders and and their elected officials who do their bidding, which is a, a large number of senators and House members, uh, can they keep doing this? Uh, and um, so far, there's signs they think they can. 
but uh, I mean, it's, it's the, the power the power of these interest groups in Washington is is still pretty great, as you know. It's greater with Mitch McConnell there. Um, that, but I, I do think there is there is now a template with Brown Wyden to do trade in a different way. But it, it's got it's got to come with domestic change in terms of wages and taxes and and the way we do incentives in our domestic economy. Another place where, but uh, I should ask, do you do you feel Biden is em- embracing of uh, of your approach? Um, Biden's voting record would not suggest that, but I think yeah. he is, and I I like so much what he's doing about dignity of work and and talking about jobs. Uh, he understands the tax system is is encourages movement offshore. I think you'll want to fix that. Another place where there's an, uh, an awful lot of influence on your colleagues, uh, and I saw it myself when I was in Washington, it's on, uh, on, in the pharmaceutical area and the cost of drugs. You famously pioneered this, uh, these journeys across border to Canada where you took constituents to, to, to buy uh, pharma, pharmaceuticals at a much lower rate than they can buy them in the, in the U.S., and you've been working hard on this issue for 30 years. Um, what, uh, what do you, what do you see happening here? I mean, every president has talked about lowering drug prices. Trump talks about it incessantly. Um, but we haven't seen progress, uh, there. And you always hear the competition between, well, we need research, we need development. Um, it's not clear that the money is going to research and development, but, uh, what, what is the opportunity for progress here? Because this is a complaint I'm sure you hear from your constituents all the time. All the time. And I mean, Trump Trump tries to take advantage of it, but offers offers nothing substantive. The trips to Canada, and I, I didn't really pioneer it. I perhaps did more of it than anybody else was doing at the time, but it, it wasn't initially my idea. But I appreciate the... the yeah, the, yeah, man. You should have just let it sit. What kind of politician are you? <laughs> what we, were, we found that... Uh, one of the things that I worked on legislatively was the, the Veterans Administration negotiated directly with the drug company and VA pays about 40, in those days, 40% for their drugs of what others would pay in the United States. And I understood that Canada did the same thing. Canada used its 30 million people as bargaining power directly with drug companies, many of which were U.S.-based, but all drug companies. And as a result, drugs in Canada were, were 50, 60, 70, 80 percent less. And someone told me that you could you could buy them in Canada. So um, we, we actually organized them. It's a little weird for a member of Congress to organize a trip of, of people to go to another country and buy something. But we would, it was a two-hour bus drive from Cleveland to the border, a little more than that, from Lorraine, where we lived. And we crossed the border in Detroit, Windsor. And um, we had a drugstore there, and the, the, we all had, they all had their prescriptions with them. We checked all that. There was a doctor at that drugstore that signed, that co-signed them, that was Canadian, if I remember right. And the drugs were the same names. They might have a different, they, they were, I mean, they were the same drugs. And um, they might have been in French in some cases and some of the boxes, but they were, um, and people saved, people saved 60, 70, 80% of their drugs. So the question is, when can they get in a bus or a car and drive down to their local pharmacy and get uh, yeah, yeah. their pharmaceuticals at the same price? Part of the reason we did it was every time we went, we saved 40 people, hundreds or, or even a few thousand dollars, people that were struggling. Um, but we also hope that would bring so much light on it that how stupid is this? A member of Congress goes, the drugs made in the U.S. often 
sold to the Canadian pharmacy and, and the, the American gets 70% off. I mean, how, how insane is that? Why don't we just do it right? Um, that didn't build. I thought enough people would start doing that. It would build the pressure. But the drug, the drug companies, uh, I, they rival they rival what tobacco used to be in Congress and their power, and they rival NRA power. I mean, there are few, there are few companies, groups of companies that, few industries that are as powerful as they. Mm-hmm. Well, we don't have to do with about drug prices. We just don't do it. And do you expect that you'll make more progress um, next year? Yeah, I, 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 maybe. I, I hear what you said earlier that there's so much on Biden's plate um, that. I don't know. I, I don't know if this rises because I haven't heard as much talk about it in this campaign and I don't hear quite as much about it at home. Um, maybe it's because of the pandemic, maybe other reasons. And I think that, I mean, it's certainly by the third year of Joe Biden or even the second year, I could see doing something major in drug prices. If the court, uh, if the court throws out the Affordable Care Act, as seems possible with Judge Barrett on the bench, do you think is Congress prepared, uh, maybe without the filibuster, uh, to replace it quickly? I mean, it, it, that is an invitation to chaos in the healthcare system and in the lives of tens of millions of Americans, and abject fear in the lives of people who have pre-existing conditions. Yeah, and a big, big tax cut for some rich people who mm-hmm. who are paying in part for the the richest. The, someone in my office gave me a chart that. One, the one-tenth of one percent richest people in this country will get a $200,000 tax cut if the court does that um, because we had, we had paid for the ACA in part through a tax on, on capital gains for really upper-income people. Yeah, it will be chaotic. Uh, right now in Ohio, five, I was talking to Senator Casey yesterday. I think he said six million in Pennsylvania. It's five or six million people in each state have a pre-existing condition. That was pre-pandemic. And imagine what it's going to be like now um, if people lose those protections and Republicans, it's almost humorous, but Republicans in their states are saying they're going to keep the consumer protections for pre-existing conditions. Well, they're not because they're they're trying to get this repealed. And Trump is trying to take away the consumer protections for pre-existing condition. That's about the worst thing possible in a pandemic. Do, so do you see the resolve there? To Yeah, I think there, there will be. Yeah, I, I can't imagine we wouldn't go back at it and and fix in a way that's constitutional. That could be the thing that provokes a uh, change in the uh, filibuster right yeah, that there. Could, that could, yep. You wrote a wonderful book called Desk 88, which I love, about people who sat at your desk in the Senate. People don't know, most people don't know that senators uh, carve their names into the desks that they sit at at the Senate for posterity. And you had uh, this illustrious list, uh, including Robert Kennedy and George McGovern Herbert Lehman, who I met when I was a young boy in New York, Al Gore Sr., who was quite a populist, Bill Proxmire, a, a, a bunch of really, uh, really eminent progressives. Um, you are in that tradition. And when this campaign season began, there was a great deal of enthusiasm for you uh, to run for president and, uh, and a real sense that you would be a frontline contender. And you started down that path of exploring. You and I spoke shortly after the 2018 election about it. And in March of 2019, you said no. Uh, and I, I want you to just explain why. What, what went through your mind? And are you happy you made that decision? No, I'll, I'll always, you can't make a decision like that and not look back 
with some wistfulness as what might have been. Um, but I, I spent um, the first two months of the year, I just come off a really hard race in Ohio. Winning as a Democrat in Ohio is expensive and hard, and it's a two-year campaign. Um, I was tired, but that's really got nothing to do with it. I launched this Dignity of Work tour where I went to the four states, and I talked to people like you and people that had been through it and could counsel me and, and, and give me some really good wisdom about it. And after two months of it, I just decided I didn't really want to do what you got to do to be elected president. I saw how arduous and hard, and it took me off. It would mean I wouldn't be much of a senator for two years because I would be out all the time raising money, making speeches. And I, I love the Senate, and it's a it's not a fallback position. It was something I love to do, but I, I just didn't have it in me to want to do um, to put my whole life and my family and everybody through something like that if I wasn't really sure I wanted to be president. You know, I, I had a discussion in uh, with Barack Obama in 2007 when, or in late six, early seven, about whether he would run for president. And I told him my, my concern for him that he was that he wasn't pathological enough to run for president, that uh, he had a life, he had all kinds of things that he cared about that would have to be sacrificed to this. And, um, and, and he had a very good answer to it. And he acknowledged that, but he said, there, you know, this was this moment was a particularly important moment. And if you're in public service, you know, and he said, I find I'll find my motivation in my competitiveness and so on. But my point is, it, it, it is a rare public official who has the introspection to be told they could be president and say, I'm not sure I want to do that. I'm not sure I want to take that path. It's also rare in these days to hear people talk about how much they enjoy being a United States senator, which uh, distinguishes you uh, I really do. as yeah. well. You can tell from the book I wrote how much I do. Yeah. Yeah. And I can tell from the calls I used to get from you when I was in, <laughs> when I was in the White House. Senator Sherrod Brown, it's always great to chat with you. My best to your wonderful wife, Connie Schultz, one of the great journalists in this country and one of the most thoughtful. Uh, I admire her greatly. So please send my best to her as well. Thank you. What a pleasure. Thank you, David, for doing it. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.